from Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can buildings be circular? Why companies are investing a billion dollars in carbon removal? An ambidextrous approach to net zero investing? And how much do sustainability professionals actually make? We're in the money this week on 350. It's April 15th, 2022. Good Friday for many of our listeners. Almost Passover for some and Ramadan for others. So happy Easter, Hag Sameach, and Ramadan Mubarak to you all. And welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me, not from Midland Park, New Jersey, wearing her Easter finest, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Aloha, Heather. Aloha, Joel. I think you just gave away where I am. <laughs> I did. I did. Oops. Uh, do you want to say why uh, you're in Hawaii this week? Ah, yeah, I think I've talked about this before, but my mother um, has been living here, um, is about to not be living here uh, for the past 25 years. And I'm here visiting with family and helping with a stuff visit. <laughs> the downsizing, the downsizing stuff visit. <laughs> <laughs> that we all I go know through. that visit yeah. well. I know mm-hmm. that visit. It's like, what stuff do you want to take? What stuff do you want to give away? What stuff do you want, or or or, or others in, in your family want? And yeah, that's uh, how's that going? Well, I just, <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty good. I mean, uh, the the good news is, and and you know, I guess this is a, a function of of having a house in Hawaii. But um, when you buy a house in Hawaii, you generally want to buy it with furniture. So that makes it a whole lot easier um, because we just have to go through the the personal items. Um, so it's it's actually going pretty well. Thank you very much for asking. It's, it's just overwhelming and I'm going to enjoy every sunset here because it's so beautiful. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just bittersweet and but 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 actually easier than than it could be. So I'm, I feel blessed. Oh, that's good. I, I was going to ask if you get any any Hawaii time beyond the, the I stuff have with managed your mom. to sneak some time off. Um, we'll see how that actually goes. It's so busy, uh, as as you know. We we have so much going on personally, and there's just there's just a lot of news this week. I mean, so much going on in the world. Yeah, um, yeah, and, good and bad, obviously. But uh, and that ain't going to stop anytime soon, particularly because we're coming up on. Earth Week and Earth Day, which, oh uh, or, or as, or as we call it, as we call Earth Day in our office, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, yep. yeah, yeah, whatever day of the week mm-hmm. it is, yeah, because uh, aside from much, much, much more email uh, pitches that we get from PR folks who somehow decide that the third week in April is the best time to promote some sustainability initiative or product, um, it's just another day at the office for us mm-hmm. or not at the office mm-hmm. or remotely, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, do you sense that the, this year, just look at you, you, you're, you see many more pitches than I do, although I see quite a number of them, uh, ramping up, uh, steady state or fewer. What, what, know, what's the state of PR pitches? <laughs> well, first of all, it's earth month apparently. So that's, that's, oh, right. yeah. So yeah. I, I get that, that sort of thing. I, I've been getting them all month. I feel like actually I, they've been spread out more. I, 
I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't say that there are more and I've, I, maybe it's, I've got just gotten better at pushing delete, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, it's, it's the usual deluge. I actually got sort of an anti earth day one um, earlier this week um, focused on, you know, sort of what we talk about all the time is that we, it, it, it's just counterintuitive to focus on this on one day. It has to be an everyday, every moment part of life and part of the business processes that we're that we're celebrating and evolving every day and um i was kind of that was a refreshing one it was it's a new book out sort of on regenerative economy issues and i just thought wow thank you so much <laughs> for like uh, yeah well <laughs> making me feel like i'm doing something right amen to that and and as and that's certainly true for us because uh, every week week in week out we spend some time talking about the week in review Well, let's start with uh, circular building design, but but more specifically, let's. I don't think we've talked about uh, John Schmea, our, our our newest member of the uh, analyst team. He's vice president for circularity and senior analyst. And I think last week we uh, bid uh, adieu, and farewell uh, to Lauren Phipps, who uh, has uh, really uh, birthed the circularity beat, uh, if you will, uh, at uh, at Green Biz and. Uh, helped us launch our circularity conference, which uh, again is coming up in uh, next month in Atlanta. But uh, Lauren, after I think eight years with us, uh, it's time to move on. And uh, uh, comes now John Schmea, uh, who came to us from uh, Anderson Windows and uh, and Steelcase, both of which, and who has a chem- PhD in chemistry and and a lot of really interesting technical chops, as well as his uh, incredible ability to communicate all this. But that brings with us a lot of, uh, on construction and buildings. And uh, in his premier uh, edition of Circularity Weekly, the newsletter that comes out every Friday, he he wrote about this. Uh, what is circular building design, as particularly as it relates to uh, C&D waste, construction and demolition waste? So interesting take and as it relates to the circular economy yeah very interesting take indeed and it was it was one of those pieces that i read i had been thinking about this a little bit you know i just because in my town i mean there's just so many there's a lot of um, construction going on in my town and people are knocking down buildings taking the stuff away and then bringing new stuff and i just this always seems i mean like i understand retrofitting and so forth i just don't understand why you have to knock down buildings (laughs) like it's just and like, why, why is it that we, that we can't retrofit more of them? I understand from um, some people that I've actually talked to informally about this, that there are sometimes um, local permit, permitting laws and so forth that prevent, that make it harder to retrofit things than, than to actually knock things down. I guess that's a whole nother, you know, probably podcast segment and, and discussion, but you know, the, the, there's some of the numbers in this, this piece really uh, staggered me like roughly half of all materials that we extract extract are used in the built environment that's that just like all that just i was like what um 30 of all construction materials delivered to building sites leave as waste i mean i would imagine that's that's that whoa i mean like i guess that's packaging i guess that's you know, cutting to fit things. And, and, you know, my husband does this. So I have some idea of like, you know, all of the things that, you know, you have to cut off in order to get the piece you really want. But 
it just, um, you know, especially in this moment when, when we know that a, there is a big reckoning going in and the built, you know, going on about the building stock, you know, like, especially with commercial buildings, like, what are we going to do with these things? Are we going to, you know, what is happening to that huge office tower in the downtown where, where people aren't going anymore? What's it going to turn into? Is it going to become residential space? Is it going to become, you know, office spaces for small suites? What's it going to become? And I, we, we know that that the real estate industry is really going through a lot right now. And we also know that in emerging economies, there's a lot of building going on. So it just, this is one of those circular circularity issues that we don't talk about that much. And I was really happy that he wrote about it because there's so there's so many stories here. Yeah, that one statistic, uh, the 30% of all construction materials delivered to building sites leave as waste. I mean, that's the one that really stuck with me because yeah, sure, you demolish something, you've got all this waste. The quite, you could debate whether you should have demolished it versus rehabbed it or something. But when you're constructing something new or uh, you know whether it's on that site or greenfield, a th- almost a third of all the materials that you buy is is never used in the building. And that some of that's over ordering, some of that's just the way lumber is cut and there's end pieces and things like that. But it's fundamentally a design problem that needs to be dealt with. And of course there's the uh, manufactured housing pre, uh, prefab as it's known, although I think the industry is trying to get away from that term uh, where you build things or walls or, or modules in a factory and then deliver them to site. And it may, it may have all the wiring and plumbing already built in, uh, maybe a complete wall system. So you don't have to do the studs and then the vapor barrier and the, uh, you know, the outer stuff and uh, inner stuff and all that stuff. Um, but I think there is only a small percentage, growing percentage of buildings are made uh, in factories or the components made in factories. And I think that needs to become a bigger part of things, particularly for some of these developments, whether they're uh, tall office buildings or rows and rows of, of housing, where you're, you're kind of replicating one floor or one building to the next. There's a huge opportunity here. And I think we need to be looking into this more. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then how do you get it there? <laughs> and the transportation, like, so it's, it's one of the, I, I, I totally agree with you, Joel. I, but then I'm, just the thing that was buzzing through my brain was, you know, when you're on the road and you see those big flatbeds hauling these pieces. Yeah. Buildings, like, well, that's, that's a logistics oh, question yeah. that I bet we could work out, yeah. uh, you know, cause you're, you're, that's I'm less concerned about that, but let's move on to the the money behind some of this waste. I guess that's a uh, not not a good segue here. But um, this is an interview that Grant Harrison, our director and senior analyst of of sustainable finance and ESG, and the the chair of the uh, Greenfin Conference coming up in June. See how I managed to keep plugging our events. Um, uh, he does a monthly interview for his newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday at Greenfin Weekly. And this one uh, has an interview with the head of, of ESG and the chief financial officer of State Street, uh, which is one of the largest uh, asset management firms, uh, second or third largest after uh, BlackRock. And it's the world's largest custodian bank. We won't get into what that is. Um, they have over $4 trillion in assets under management. So to be able to get uh, hear from both the sustainability lead and the financial lead of that company is a really interesting, uh, I think, opportunity. And, and kudos to Grant for uh, landing those interviews. Um, but I think one of the things that pieces of this that struck me is, 
is their approach to the transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. And what Rick, Rick LaCalle, who's the global head of ESG initiatives at State Street, called the ambidextrous approach uh, to net zero, uh, which is basically saying uh, it's a combination of investing heavily in renewables, but also continuing to be responsible owners of existing hydrocarbon assets as they are wound, ba- wound back, as he put it, um, which is to say that uh, if you just uh, if you don't do that, if you just say no fossil fuels, then someone else is going to invest in those who may be less scrupulous, who may not even care about the environmental uh, implications or climate change, and uh, and so that's his approach. I'm I know I'm sure that's uh, controversial, uh, but it, it it does seem pragmatic. What, what did you think, Heather? Yeah, that is something that I, again, I've heard, you know, that you can debate that one till the cows come home, if you will. But the activist, the, the activism that you can provide from the inside out, right? Um, I think that's important. I, I don't know how I feel about this personally, like the whole, you know, we should hold on to it so we can help the transition. I mean, I guess I guess I, I actually probably am more on that side than the, you know, you have to get out of all of these assets and be purist. Um, it, it, it is called a transition for a reason. Is it an abrupt transition? Is it a is it a practical transition? Is it a pragmatic? I don't know. I mean, like, what what adjective you put in front of this? I did I, I did appreciate the use of the word ambidextrous. I thought, wow. <laughs> um, but I also really appreciate what State Street is trying to do is with respect to diversity. Um, I, we know that there's a issue with having diverse perspectives in within these firms, right, that, that are advising investment strategies. Um, we know that there are not enough individuals, uh, you know, who represent um, the BIPOC community or more women, for that matter, um, disabled individuals and veteran-owned for, I mean, we, we know that that we don't have that enough of that perspective within the industry itself to be making decisions about financial investments. And then we also know that we aren't investing enough in businesses of that sort. And State Street is really um, trying to make its uh, make itself a leader here in this, this regard. Um, they've got, you know, policies that they're putting in place re- requiring those that they're investing in to meet certain criteria. Um, you know, they're 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 asking portfolio companies to have a person of color on their board, disclose the racial and ethnic. I mean, it's a lot of it's sort of table stakes, honestly, but. I do appreciate that they're getting that dialogue out there um, and that they're actually trying to do the, the, the work internally as well. It's not like that them just saying, hey, you know, companies in our portfolio, you have to do this. They're actually um, really focusing on how they're spending across diverse suppliers, um, how they're hiring, um, what their workplace looks like, how they're advancing um, individuals within their own teams, right? You know, like it's not just hiring someone in for a position, it's how do you how do you help them develop throughout their career? Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, good stuff. Um, but I want to go back to the ambidextrous approach with fossil fuels because <laughs> because it it's it sounds good and and it sounds responsible to use their word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all in the execution because um, mm-hmm. Are they going to be actively moving the fossil fuel companies mm-hmm. towards uh, reduced emissions, towards uh, transitioning out of fossil fuels, or are they just going to be more of a 
of a lifeguard, if you will, just watching the pool and seeing, oh, oh, someone's in trouble or some someone needs attention, and then jumping in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big. That's not clear here from this interview, and and that's something that I think you know, a reasonable person, certainly an activist, could look at uh, a little bit with John die and say, I, it sounds good, but I don't know how this is actually going to play out. How how engaged is State Street generally? I mean, like, I don't know that. Um, I do know that there are others that are considering me. Like, I, I was just with the Schroeders folks um, a couple of weeks ago, and I know that they're pretty active as an, as an, you know, in, in terms of their engagement strategy. How is State, State Street normally? You know, I think reasonably engaged, but I think the answer mm-hmm. to any of these, including the ones you just mentioned, Schroeders, is no one's active enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I think that's the key. And, you know, what for you might be, you know, active to someone from uh, an activist group or even a local community uh, that's suffering some of the, you know, neuro refinery may, may be, uh, that's just not enough. It's all talk and it's, it's, in, it's off in the future and it's not affecting my life right now. So um, I think there, there's a need to be clear about what the, it's not just the aspiration, but what's the actual action on, on all of these things. But let's move over to another story, the last story we want to talk about uh, today, which is one that you did, Heather, on uh, uh, a number of companies that are that are spending almost a billion dollars on carbon removal. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I have been writing about the individual efforts of some of these companies before, um, but basically the bottom line is um, Stripe which has been, um, for the past two years, uh, basically running and managing an offsets program. And I will call it, I will call them offsets. You called me, you called me on this a couple of weeks ago, Joel, on the podcast. If, if someone's paying for carbon removal uh, through a uh, direct air capture or through another um, solution, is it an offset? And I was like, well, I don't know. I think it's different than an offset. Well, it is an offset. I'll call it that. Um, Anyway, so the, these Shopify and Stripe have been basically for the last couple of years running these programs individually. They, they've gone out, they've, they've found early stage companies in carbon capture and carbon removal. Um, and and they, they're not just, um, you know, technology approaches. Some of them are engineered, um, some of them are engineered, but some of them are very focused on minerals or mineralization and natural, natural solutions. But they've set, created these funds where they're actually paying uh, more money basically creating the, the buying demand for, for offsets from those projects. So they're saying, instead of going out and buying these avoidance offsets to um, you know, address our strategy for net zero or whatever it is, because not all of these companies have a net zero strategy, they're going out and supporting early stage companies by, by basically saying, yep, you've got a project, we're gonna, we're gonna pay this much for, per metric ton. And then they're paying, in, in some cases, you know, up to six hundred dollars for per metric ton. I mean, some of these some of these uh, approaches are really expensive. I think Stripe um, was paying like six hundred dollars per metric ton for work being done by Charm. What is happening now is that these companies that have been kind of not dabbling but doing it on their own have come come together. Um, we have Stripe, which has been very active, coming together with Shopify, Alphabet, Meta, and McKinsey um, to spend almost. A billion, 925 million to be exact, on a fund that will basically collaborate and combine their expertise in this area. So, you know, it's kind of akin to what um, some of the early, some the early. It reminds me of the early stage of corporate renewable procurement, where these companies were coming together and saying, "Here's what we want. 
here's, you know, here's what we want in these things. Here's what we're willing to pay. And instead of, in, in this case, the, the, the real reason for this fund is that they now have, they're combining resources more than anything. And they've kind of got a, um, you know, a, some criteria that they've, they've developed over the past couple of years that they're formalizing more. Um, they're saying, this is what we want to do. Um, here are companies, you can work with us instead of all these different organizations. And in the future, they do hope to, to bring in other buyers. So, you know, these are, re- but I want to just clear, I mean, these are for actual remo- removals. And that is part of the criteria is that they actually have to show a net negative um, emissions impact and they have to prove it. So it's pretty, I think it's pretty, um, it's, it's important. It's, we need it. Um, is it enough? No, I kind of, it's always kind of like, why are the tech companies always so far ahead? Cause it's a lot of tech companies again. And I also, my other question before I let you talk and get a word in edgewise is where's Microsoft? Because Microsoft Mm is really doing a lot of great work here. And I was like, well, why aren't they involved? Because I would love to see them as part of this as well. So there, sure. what are your questions? <laughs> well, uh, Microsoft and and, and uh, Amazon also not not involved here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, no, I was, I don't have a question. I was just going to say, I, I love the, the criteria that they're working on. Uh, one of which is uh, that the uh, uh, greenhouse gases that they're removed from the atmosphere have to, uh, be taken out and stay out for uh, more than a thousand years. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love the millennial thinking, and and I just uh, I wonder is is that typical these days? Is that uh, the kinds of criteria, or at least one of the criteria that are being used a thousand years? That's pretty remarkable, and and I wonder actually how they can uh, have any assurance on that as well. Well, I think that's part of the reason that many individuals are questioning sort of the the, the offsets market that that's been in place up to this point is is that permanence element is like especially with all these you know I mean I'll just say it the forest fires I mean like we, we've talked on in the past about you know this offsets project that people paid money for and then it, then you know there was a fire um, so a lot of these I guess Microsoft has been. Uh, really focusing in on this as well as they want, they don't want to put money into things that aren't going to last, you know, in this case, it's a thousand years. I, mean, I don't know who arbitrarily decided that, but uh, there's a lot of mineralization um, plays within this, this particular portfolio of companies, the early companies that, that these, these, in, these firms, especially again, Stri- Stripe and Shopify are really the ones that have been doing a lot of work here. Um, and they have all been focusing on that. It's one reason why biochar, um, which tends to have a like like a longer, it's not a thousand, it's not the thousand year thing, but it, it does tend to be a bit longer. But that's shown up in all of those portfolios, including Microsoft. They put they put a, quite a bit into that as well. Um, so I know you know it's really that they're, they're really trying to address the permanence. Um, there's another thing at play, and it's it's not in the headline here, but. Um, Carbon Cure, which is one of the companies that's using captured CO2 and injecting it into concrete, right? Back to the buildings thing. Um, they also had a deal this week. They uh, $30 million with Ripple, which is one of the crypto firms in Invert, which is a, an investor. Um, basically, they're creating a, um, those two companies are buying hundreds of thousands of immediate permanent and verifiable carbon credits to be delivered over a 10 year period. That's a quote from the, the contract. Um, so, you know, 
I think buildings could be actually another area where the CO2 is sequestered for a longer amount of time. Now, provided you don't knock them down, right? <laughs> and uh, what happens to that material once, once it, you know, so anyway, it's, there's a lot going on. Um, the permanence thing, I don't know how they're going to verify. And to my, actually, the point I was really going to make is carbon cure actually has a verified process. They're one of the few that has had their methodology officially blessed by Vera. Um, so int- very interesting. Very interesting indeed. It's time once again to look across the Atlantic with our uh, friend, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green, James Murray. Uh, Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, It seems the story this week in Europe and the UK is energy security. Uh, UK, uh, your country just uh, launched a a big plan. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, so basically, um, ever since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, there's been this focus across European governments about you know, the, the energy security risk that we, we currently face. Um, I mean, that, that has a couple of elements. I mean, firstly, you know, Europe as a whole is hugely reliant on Russian oil and gas. Um, we, we're sort of the primary market for selling oil and gas and, and to a degree coal uh, from Russia. Uh, the levels of reliance vary, but the price is still going to be set by, you know, supplies from Russia of those commodities. Um, so there's been this sort of immense call for two reasons. One, just the sheer moral reason for it and and the fact that you know we're sending aid to you know aid to ukraine but at the same time we're actually sending more money to russia to buy oil and gas from them and they are using that to fund their war machine and while there's been sanctions on virtually every aspect of the russian economy there's not been sanctions on fossil fuels because if you were to stop importing those uh, to germany to the uk and others um energy prices would I mean, beyond saw, and their economies would would be in thrown into deep recession very, very quickly. Um, so there's suddenly this immense focus on how do we stop how do we stop sending money to Russia? Basically, how do we get off these fossil fuels as quickly as possible? Obviously, it relates to the climate debate, but that's not the primary focus here. The primary focus here is pure security. Um, so several countries um, over the last month and the EU have come forward with these emboldened energy security plans and this week it was the UK's turn after a couple of weeks of delays uh, it finally put forward its big new strategy. So we're recording this uh, quite a number of days uh, before it's going to run um, just for logistics reasons and and I know there's been talk about the the, the possible at least ban on on Russian coal uh, so we don't really know exactly what will have happened in the interim but, but my question is uh, what's the uh, uh, the the people who are you know going to be affected by higher energy prices i mean is in the united states uh that's just a, almost a political third rail uh we've got inflation as it is uh the gas prices seem to be a, a, a sacred thing even more so than the price of, of bread or eggs or milk um i'm just wondering how much are willing people willing to tolerate uh the the higher prices and how much has that become a political issue I mean, it's become a huge political issue in the UK and to a, to, a, to a slightly lesser degree in other countries. I mean, we are facing a very severe cost of living crisis. You know, they're, they're talking of almost a third of households in the UK could technically be pushed into fuel poverty, where more than 10% of income is spent on energy. Um, energy bills have increased best part of 50%. Um, and there's talk of them potentially doubling by the end of the year for many households. So it's a really severe crisis. I mean, the government's polls have, have, have dropped in large part because of the economic situation. 
Um, and then obviously the real big worry is there's still this sort of looming energy security threat. The Kremlin said that it could turn off uh, gas exports. Um, meanwhile, Ukraine is pleading with Europe to stop buying this gas. So um, it could get worse before it gets better. So it's it's a really serious um, political issue. And it sort of demands a response. And, and one of the areas of disappointment has been the UK strategy in particular, again, to a slightly less degree, some of the other strategies haven't really reckoned with the measures that they could take to help tackle this problem. So there hasn't been sort of an increase in funding for energy efficiency measures. Uh, no politicians have come out or very few politicians have come out and said, why don't you try turning the thermostat down a notch? Why don't you try driving a bit slower or driving a bit less? Why don't you do your bit to reduce energy use? And and, and that will help. Um, and the, the, the new energy generation that could be built fastest onshore wind and onshore solar is still subject to kind of nimbyism and really um, strict planning rules that make it difficult to build those projects quickly. So uh, the government in the UK came forward with this energy security strategy um, uh, this week. And it, bits of it were really good. You know, they're going to invest a lot more in um, offshore wind. They're going to sort of accelerate the development of that market. Uh, they're talking about big new plans for nuclear but these are all projects that are going to take five, six, ten years uh, to deliver. So there was a sense of that's welcome, but where's the things that can kind of tackle this energy security threat that we're facing right now? Well, all of, everything you mentioned, uh, the the political peril, the energy poverty, the nimbyism, I mean, that's just, that's just uh, so familiar here in the States. I'm wondering, is there a silver lining here, particularly as it relates to, to climate? Is, do you see anything that can come out of this in a positive way? Um, there definitely, yes, there is. Um, and as I said, the frustration has been that the gov governments haven't done the short-term measures to try and reduce energy use. And, and, you know, the frustration with that in the Ukrainian government is absolutely palpable for obvious reasons. But there is a sense that governments have woken up to the fact that relying on these fossil fuels from petrostates that are often hostile powers is just inherently risky and and wrong-headed and and that needs to change now some people have tried to argue you should slow down on net zero and focus on developing your own fossil fuels but that argument hasn't really gained traction so the key components of these energy security strategies tend to be much more rapid development of renewables um, and nuclear um, and and some some elements of energy efficiency but not nearly enough uh, for my liking um, but, you know, there is now, uh, you know, a long term plan. I think that the energy security strategy that the UK government produced was talking about the UK having 95 percent of its power from domestic low carbon sources by 2030, which is only eight years away. I think the, 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 the German government's plan is similarly about 80 percent. And, you know, they're, they're starting from a position where they're still much more reliant on coal um, and they don't have as much nuclear. So. You know, you can see a scenario where this disaster should help trigger an, an even more accelerated wave of renewables development, um, of electric vehicle charging infrastructure development um, and nuclear development that will over time see Europe become much less reliant on fossil fuels. So, you know, there is a hope here that a, that a lesson has been learned um, in, in the most horrible of circumstances. It strikes me that on uh, both sides of the, of, the, of the Atlantic that we spend way too much time looking at energy supply, you know, no more, no more fossil fuels, uh, let's stop the drilling and the mining and all of that, and not so much on the demand side. We're not mm -hmm. necessarily looking at the, you know, the airlines and the auto companies and the utilities. I mean, we are, but not the pressure doesn't seem to be there as much on the demand side, let, let alone the homeowners and the business owners, the commercial buildings and all of that. Um, it, 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 is that similar at your end? 
It's exactly the same. It's it's a, a really enormous problem and an enormous market failure that I think is found in all economies. I mean, the UK is particularly bad. So there's been some studies done that show other Northern European countries like the Netherlands and the Nordics, the efficiency of their home is sort of two, three times better uh, than the UK. And then, then they have much higher deployment of heat pumps. Whereas in the UK, we have this sort of mix of housing, often very old housing, as anyone who's visited will know. And they're hugely inefficient. You just, you, it's just energy waste. I mean, we, we call it efficiency, but it is just waste. And, and people are operating these boilers that just burn gas to heat air that then flows out the windows and under the door. So, you know, there's a, a massive problem. And of course, it's a really intractable problem to solve because it does require people to spend money on improving their homes, which is always politically tricky. It requires upfront capital to do that to unlock long-term savings. And for politicians, it's kind of a long-term payoff thing that's not particularly glamorous. So it tends not to catch people's attention um, unless it's at a moment of crisis like we're seeing now. Uh, th- there was a really interesting thread from a guy who um, used to work as a very senior civil servant. And he just said, it's just this intractable problem that politicians just won't prioritise it because it's not seen as glamorous, it's not seen as exciting, and it is seen as very difficult. And the net result is, yeah, there's just not this much focus on the demand side. And and we all, so many of us, live in really inefficient homes that are wasting energy, have higher bills as a result, have higher um, emissions as a result, um, result in more energy insecurity. Uh, and of course, in increase the cost of decarbonisation because if you're wasting power it means you if you want to decarbonise you've got to build yet more nuclear plants or yet more renewables to deliver the amount of power that you need. Uh, as Rahm Emanuel once said uh, never let a good crisis go to waste I, I, I fear that this one may be slipping away but um, uh, there is some there are some rays of hope as you said and we'll keep watching that. Uh, James Murray is the editor-in-chief of Business Green over in London. James it's always a pleasure. Thanks John. This week, Green Biz published its seventh biennial State of the Profession report, a look inside the profession of sustainability. Uh, Among other things, it's eagerly awaited because it talks about how much sustainability professionals make each year. But it's much more than a salary report. And here to give us the skinny on that is Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So first of all, talk a little bit about the report and how you pull it together. Well, we go out to thousands of people. We got 14, more than 1,400 responses this year. And we have a number of channels and partners we use, the Wine Red Group, GRI, EDF, help us go out worldwide and collect responses. And the cool thing this year is I said we have 1,400 responses overall, but we had more than 750 respondents from large companies, which is usually who's most interested in benchmarking their their team sizes, the the growth of the business, and and as you mentioned, salaries, bonuses, and raises. So, uh, large companies, I think you define as any company make with more than a billion dollars of revenue. Um, yeah, it seems to be a pretty heady time for people in the sustainability profession. Did that show up in your findings? It really did. We, you know. We didn't know what the pandemic was going to do. I mean, our last report came out just uh, before the pandemic. And so we didn't know what the impact of the pandemic was going to be. You and I have talked about back in 08, 09, during the financial crisis, we saw sustainability teams take a real hit. 
And we didn't know if that was going to happen this time, but it's definitely the opposite. Team sizes are bigger. People, more people hired, more people um, added, added ESG roles, you know, something that we hadn't asked about previously. So it's something we're calling the great expansion. We're seeing more teams, more, more uh, everything. Yeah. Uh, and expanding remits too, which is uh, uh, what, what you do when you have a bigger team. So uh, what are you finding about the nature of the people who are in the profession of sustainability in terms of where they come from, their education, uh, their diversity, anything else? What's any trends or any market differences than it was two years ago? Well, we've seen ever since we started this, we've seen more and more diversity with women. And so we've seen more and more women in leadership roles in the profession. What's disappointing is we're still not seeing very much diversity beyond that. So it's still a primarily predominantly white uh, profession. And, you know, there are a number of things like greenbiz.org and other initiatives where we're trying to bring along our emerging leaders program at all of our events where we're trying to bring more diverse people into the profession. But I think that's one of the, the disappointments of the report, really. And and how about where uh, sustainability professionals uh, report in? Uh, and how high up is, is that sort of staying the same? Or, or are they starting to report more into the C-suite? Um, it sort of stayed the same from two years ago. But what we did see that was really fascinating is we asked people to rate on a scale of one to seven how engaged their CEOs are. And those numbers are off the chart this year. So, um, you know, CEO engagement has really grown in the last two years. We, we want to say, you know, maybe that's because they understand everything that the sustainability professionals do. But, you know, it may also be because Wall Street woke up and started asking boards questions. Yeah, that no doubt uh, got some companies moving. Uh, how about where companies are sourcing sustainability professionals when they're hiring, expanding their teams or replacing old ones, I guess? Um, uh, are they coming primarily from inside companies or are they going outside more? Uh, definitely going outside more. And, you know, this isn't addressed statistically in the report, but we're seeing a lot of people who were directors at, at a company who maybe weren't going to rise up to the top role, getting picked and getting the leadership role at companies that haven't really had a focus on sustainability quite as strong. So it's really encouraging because it's going to bring people with the experience into new companies to launch programs. And I think that helps grow the whole profession as well. So let's get to what you and the report call the big reveal, uh, the compensation piece. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of trends around uh, total compensation, a base salary with uh, bonuses, options, and things like that? Uh, has it changed much? And uh, what are you seeing? It's changed more for the vice presidents and directors. I think there's a real battle for those people. And just in anecdotal conversations, I'm not sure we totally are getting quite how much people are getting paid, especially at the higher levels, because, you know, titles vary at different organizations and bands of salary. I think they're, the salaries are actually higher than what is reflected in the report. Well, how so? 
Well, we had uh, an early reveal of the report to our members of the Green Biz Executive Network, and several of them said, we think your numbers are a little low because um, of the types of companies that they're in. So when we ask someone, what's your title, and they say vice president, you can be vice president of a million dollar, billion dollar company or a $35 billion company. And the compensation levels are very different there. So, you know, there, there's a certain uh, um, minutiae that we can't really get to in this kind of report. So we think that it's uh, going gangbusters for a number of people and they're getting more compensated compared to financial or, or um, other leadership roles than, you know, um, smaller roles. I know making predictions is always a dicey territory, but do you think this is going to continue with both the, uh, the, the growth of the profession, the, the you know, bumping up of salaries, the getting closer to the C-suite? Um, what, what's the forecast? Boy, that's a good question, Joel. I have, I have mixed feelings about the forecast. I think, you know, there's a big, this focus from boards and, and Wall Street to increase teams to have more ESG reporting. Does that just mean that we have more reporting or the, and, and it diverts efforts from making impact? Or does this, you know, point the way that, that team sizes are going to grow and we're going to have more impact? in the sustainability arena. Um, yeah, that's the tough call to make. Well, stay tuned and we'll keep on it um, as we report on this stuff uh, all year long, not just every two years, but this is that, that year, the 2022 State of the Professional Report. John Davies put it together. He's vice president and senior analyst here at GreenBiz. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Joel. And you can download the State of the Professional Report from greenbiz.com. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your questions, your comments, your tips. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time.